at what point did you start to realize then that this wasn't going to be like a sweet setup and it was going to turn bitter? I don't know that I ever really fully realized that because it is marketed as this, like, it's really empowering and it's fun and you can, there's so much potential to meet these like mystery guys that are going to take you on cruises around the world. You're literally being gaslit by this logic. Like it's completely counterintuitive to where our society is going right now. And I think that's a big piece for people that do sugar kind of have that revelation of like, is this actually empowering? Like, I don't think it is because I'm still dependent on a man to be able to pay my bills at the end of the day. This podcast is made possible by Fighter Club. If you're looking for a way to become a more active part of this movement, consider joining Fighter Club today. For as little as 10 bucks a month, you can create a real impact by supporting our efforts to educate and raise awareness on the harms of porn. Plus, by joining, you can get insider info, 30% off all Fight the New Drugs conversation starting gear, access to our secret store, and an exclusive Fighter Club kit sent to you when you sign up. For a limited time, when you join Fighter Club, you'll get a free Fight the New Drug hat as a thank you. Join Fighter Club today at ftnd.org forward slash join FC. That's ftnd.org forward slash join FC. See you in the club. My name is Garrett Johnson, and you're listening to Consider Before Consuming, a podcast by Fight the New Drug. And in case you're new here, Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. We want these conversations to be educational, uplifting, and hopeful. As we sit down with experts, influencers, activists, and people with personal accounts, we cover a wide variety of topics that may be triggering to some. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is with Megan Lundstrom, an exploitation and trafficking survivor turned sociologist. Today, Megan is the co-founder and CEO of the Avery Center, an organization dedicated to ending commercial sexual exploitation. She is a contracted trainer, consultant, and a national speaker. During this conversation, we talk about her own lived experience of being exploited through sugaring websites, the impacts of a pornified culture, and what has to happen to end commercial sexual exploitation. With that being said, let's jump into the conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Consider Before Consuming. Hello. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the groundwork, like the basics, like who okay. are you? What are you up to? And why did we ask you to join us on Consider Before Consuming? Oh, man. Okay. My name is Megan Lundstrom. I am one of the co-founders and the chief executive officer at the Avery Center. Um, and I am also a survivor of human trafficking. What was your second question? Oh, yeah. I asked too many questions right in a row, huh? <laughs> Okay, so you answered who you are and you answered what you're up to kind of when in regards to business, you answered what you're up to. What else are you up to yes. these days? Oh, man. What, what does your day to day look like? 
uh, different every single day. So I do run the Avery Center, um, but I also do a lot of contract uh, consulting, training, and public speaking nationally. Um, so I do a lot of traveling. I'm currently working on several different really exciting research projects. Um, so I'm kind of all over in the anti-trafficking field right now. Wow. Good for you. That represents a lot of work. Like you've put yes. in a lot of work to be where you're at today. It's, you know, it's so crazy. Um, so I have five years of lived experience, but then I have been in this field for almost a decade too. So thinking about like 15 years, like that's almost half of my life, yeah. um, which just feels really weird to even say. So um, yeah, I've gotten to see a lot, seen a lot of growth, seen a lot of really weird stuff in this field, um, but also got to meet a lot of really amazing humans. That's really cool. I am curious to know more about the research that you're, are you performing research? Like you're the one doing the research or just kind of participating in a way? Yeah. So the Avery Center actually has a full research department. Um, so I was previously the director of research and then we restructured this year. So I moved into the role as CEO, but I still take part in um, some of the research projects. So some of those I'm kind of just in the background of and get really cool updates of what's going on, um, like our OnlyFans research. Um, and then there's other projects that I am directly overseeing. Um, one of the projects that I'm working on right now is looking at long-term career path development for survivors of exploitation. Um, and then also working on a really new project with Polaris and looking at financial crimes. Wow. That's good work. Yeah. Super cool. It's nerdy. You, your resume is impressive. Oh, <laughs> did and you look at it? Oh, geez. I just listened to it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I've looked at it as well. Um, well, you answered all three of the questions, who you are, what you're up to and why you're here on the podcast with us today. And <clears throat> a lot of our listeners aren't going to know, aren't going to be familiar with the term sugar dating. Yeah, so I think it might be good to start off the interview or conversation with you defining what is sugar dating. Sure. So sugar dating is really kind of, um, let me break it down. So uh, based on research, uh, you typically have a sugar daddy or a sugar mommy, but um, overwhelmingly it's sugar daddies. So men um, who are um, pretty stable uh, financially and have some disposable income. And then you have the sugar baby, um, which also can be any gender. Um, and, but Again, research shows that most sugar babies are women, um, typically very young women. So 18 to 24 uh, college age students are who is kind of the target demographic for sugar dating. Um, and those individuals are more likely to be um, persons of color, um, more likely to have like lower levels of education compared to sugar daddies. So there's there's definitely this like... Um, a gender and an economic uh, power differential in those relationships. And well, quote unquote, I'm going to use air quotes uh, for relationship because really what it is, is a transactional relationship where the sugar daddy provides um, financial support or gifts in exchange for, again, air quotes, companionship. Um, but that companionship more often than not is actually um, sex and sexual services. Mm. Okay. And you mentioned that you have five years of lived experience. And when you say lived experience, you're referring to you experienced, you were a sugar baby 
is what they refer to them as, right? Yes, that is really how I initially got into the commercial sex trade and then ended up being trafficked from there. Okay. And from what I understand, uh, you learned of a website called seekingarrangements.com, correct? Yes. What's the context behind that story? Like, how did you happen upon that website? Sure. Um, So at the time, I think I was 22, 23 years old. I was going through a divorce um, from the father of my two older kiddos. Um, And, you know, 23, like who gets divorced at 23? That's so young. Like a lot of people aren't even getting married at 23, much less divorced. Mm. Um, And so one of my girlfriends from high school, you know, we would hang out and she came over one day and she said, oh my gosh, I just saw this commercial. And it was talking about these like, uh, arrangements that, you know, you get to go out on dates with these really wealthy guys that are generous and good looking. And they take you on trips and out to dinner and stuff and help you out with some of your bills. And she was like, you know, you're just getting out of a marriage. You probably don't want to jump into a serious relationship. Um, but you're also kind of struggling financially, to support your two kids by yourself. So she was like, I don't know, like I, I would totally do it. I just don't know if any guys would like me, but she was like, you're super cute. You should try it out. Um, and I just kind of thought about it. Like, I don't know, I guess like that logic seemed to make sense in my head. Like none of those things were untrue. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the, where I ended up at, at the top of the slippery slope and it literally was downhill from there. Okay. And you mentioned that there are certain populations that are more at risk to becoming victims of uh, sugar dating and, and trafficking. Do you consider yourself at that time at age 23 with two kids in the middle of a divorce? Do you consider yourself to have been uh, a member within one of those uh, more vulnerable populations? Absolutely. So Rachel Lloyd, who is the founder of GEMS in New York, um, she's also a survivor. Uh, She presented at a conference once and drew kind of like three overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram, and explained that commercial sexual exploitation happens at the intersections of race, class, and gender. Um, And so when you look at where were my vulnerabilities at that time, while I am a woman, Um, I was a very young woman at that time experiencing significant financial instability and a lack of um, social supports to help uh, reduce that vulnerability. Um, And I was also a survivor of multiple types of gender-based violence up to that point. Um, So when you have all of those vulnerabilities and kind of those intersecting identities, you're at extremely high risk for exploitation. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just want to say that I admire you because if I put myself in your your shoes as a 23-year-old with two children, man, that is very, very, that's a tough situation. I have kids myself and I know how, how challenging it is to raise kids with my partner. And so I just have empathy for the 23-year-old you. Thank you. It's something I've definitely learn to have some empathy for myself because I, you know, it's easy to look at somebody else and feel that, um, but then criticize yourself. Um, and so as I've moved forward in my healing, I can definitely look back now and see, like, I was, I was just a, a little girl still that, that didn't have anybody to protect me. And I did so good with such horrible options. Yeah. 
It's interesting that you refer to yourself as a little girl at age 23. And I I find that so true because when I look at myself at, you know, in my early twenties, you know, the, the, the brain doesn't fully develop until you're supposedly like late twenties. And my wife says that mine didn't develop until just like last week. So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's, just joking. But the reality is, is like, even though you're an adult at 23, you're still young. So young. And I, like my, so my oldest kiddo is 18 now and I had him at 18 and oh, I wow. look at him and I'm like, oh my gosh, like somebody <laughs> entrusted me at your age, like handed me a baby at a hospital and was like, you've got this. Wow. So it's, it's been like watching him grow up has definitely helped with some of that empathy of like, I was just young and I had a lot of unprocessed uh, trauma on top of that. So like my brain was literally in this like arrested development stage where I didn't have the ability to really think through the consequences and outcomes of things. Like my prefrontal cortex was not fully working as some days, like you've said, like some days I still question if it is, but right. um, yeah, <laughs> it's, you're so young at that age when you look back, but you know, tell a 23 year old that and they're not going to believe you. <laughs> yeah. You tell an eight-year-old that and they think they know everything. So of course, <laughs> well, I think it'd be interesting to understand how you define trauma because you mentioned that you had unprocessed traumas at that time. How do you define trauma? Ooh, I thought I was going to be prepared for all the questions you had. Um, so trauma to me is loosely based off of all the work that I've done and, you know, books I've read and stuff. So to me, trauma is an event that you do not have control over in the moment. Um, but that afterwards, this is where like trauma gets stored in our bodies and impacts our development is we don't have the social supports around us to, walk us through processing the emotional component of that trauma. So Mm. when you're in a traumatic experience, like your brain literally goes into survival mode. You're not thinking through like, where am I feeling tension in my body right now? You know, if I could label this feeling, like you don't have time to do those things. And if you don't do those things afterwards and, and move through those, that trauma stays stored in your body and it impacts your development. Right. The body keeps the score. Yes. You passed <laughs> the test. Sense. That makes sense. <laughs> um, jumping back to your experience, we talked about how you happened upon this website and how you, that, that idea of doing this, it was planted in your brain. You're like, okay, maybe this could work. Maybe this could be beneficial. Can you speak to your experience, like the first couple dates that you went on and how those played out? Yeah, definitely. Um, Again, like at 23, I just look back and I was newly divorced and very much feeling like I missed out on um, just being a young adult. Like I didn't get to go to college. I didn't get to go to house parties. I didn't get to hang out with girlfriends. Like I didn't do those things. And so at 23, I felt like I needed to catch up for lost time. Mm. Um, So kind of went through like a little bit of a party girl phase with girlfriends and um And I think that that's really common with sugaring, especially with college age students who are exploring their own identity and sexuality and what they're comfortable with and and defining those things for themselves. So um, those first couple dates, I do remember like, 
you know, messaging a few guys and it, it just feeling off. So not following through. Um, one of the first guys that I did meet up with, um, he picked me up from my girlfriend's house. Cause I felt like that would be safer than giving him my address, which I'm like, was that actually safer? It was safer for me, not her. Right. Um, and going back to his loft and just feeling very uncomfortable and his behavior while I was there, um, I started to suspect that he was maybe recording our interactions. And so I didn't feel comfortable engaging in any sexual activity with him because mm-hmm. I felt like something like something was just off. Um, so he did end up taking me back to my girlfriend's house. Like, thankfully, nothing you know, worse happened. I think back to that, like that could have gone horribly. Um, the, another guy that I went out, um, on an initial date with, um, I think really quickly honed in on the fact, like how vulnerable I was. Um, I think it was like maybe November, December. I mean, it was cold out and I didn't have a jacket. Like I couldn't afford a jacket. And so he was like, well, if you want to go out with me next week, like, um, come to my house, we'll eat dinner. We'll spend some time together and then I'll buy you a jacket. Um, and again, I just look back, like I had a basic need that wasn't being met. And rather than having people around me that could just help meet my basic needs, because I'm a human, um, this guy was leveraging his sexual desires um, to meet my basic needs, like having a winter coat. Um, so that individual, I ended up going to his house a few times. Um, he did get physically violent. It was a very scary um, situation and also ended up uh, basically not giving me money um, the last time that we met up with one another because I did not consent to the things that he was wanting to do. Um, that was really scary. And, and he did know where I lived. He dropped me off, you know, right in front of my apartment building. And again, I just think back like how, how dangerous that could have been. It was scary and and traumatic anyways, but it could have been worse. Right. It seems like from what I know about sugaring is that the sites that facilitate it often market themselves as like progressive and win-win situations and like these setups are like sweet sweet setups for these young women young girls but oftentimes the, the experience has become bitter right and so can you talk to that like you've already talked to it a little bit about the first time you suspected that this individual was going to engage in some type of non-consensual image-based abuse you left and then the the violence on the second one the violent behavior. At what point did you start to realize then that this wasn't going to be like a sweet setup and it was going to turn bitter? I don't know that I ever really fully realized that because it is marketed as this, like, it's really empowering and it's fun and you can, there's so much potential to meet these like mystery guys that are going to take you on cruises around the world. And so the messaging that I internalized I think primarily just being a woman is that it's my fault that these things are happening to me and that I'm not making good picks with the sugar daddies that I'm engaging with or that like, you know, I am a single parent, so I, I didn't have the ability to travel. So maybe I'm not as accessible or I'm not as pretty as, you know, these really successful sugar daddies, wherever they are. Um, and I think that, 
yeah, I think just socially, like that's part of the messaging as women that we carry in our culture. Um, but then when you're, when you participate in sugaring, like here's, what's so crazy is these websites gaslight you. Um, so if you think about like, where is culture headed right now? I, I don't know about you. I am addicted to TikTok. I have a lot of opinions about some of the things on TikTok, but I freaking love, I just love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like a wormhole of like 40 second videos. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so my my master's degree is in sociology. So I am legitimately obsessed with just watching people. I'm just mm-hmm. fascinated by how people operate. So TikTok really sucks me in. But but this like this glorification of, uh, this lifestyle, um, the, the normalization of these like outdated gender roles. So I see a lot of messaging around like women's empowerment and like having access to our own bank accounts. And like, I bought my own house in my own name two years ago. And like women are really coming to this place of like, you have to bring more to the table than a paycheck. Like you have to be a whole human and and be willing to be emotionally vulnerable and, and support me in that way, if we're going to be in a partnership. So I see our culture kind of moving in this way. And then you go look at seeking arrangements or other sugaring websites. And it's like, Oh, like you can find a wealth, like young girls can find wealthy gentlemen to take care of them. And that's empowering. And you're like, you're literally being gaslit by this logic. Like it's completely counterintuitive to where our society is going right now. And I think that's a big piece for people that do sugar kind of have that revelation of like, is this actually empowering? Like, I don't think it is because I'm still dependent on a man to be able to pay my bills at the end of the day. So how is that giving me freedom in a society that like we've moved away from that? And I think one of the misconceptions from people that maybe don't have lived experience within the sex trade um, is that each kind of form of exploitation or each venue is its own silo. So like, oh, like there's people that work in strip clubs. There's people that work in massage parlors. There's people that sugar. There's people Mm. that engage in street prostitution. And Yes, to some degree, like different people get put in different venues, but ultimately traffickers don't care. And oftentimes it's the exact same people that it's, it's touted within the commercial sex trade as having like multiple streams of revenue. So you're going to be actively, um, have an active profile on a sugaring website and you're going to be posting on websites like Backpage or Skip the Games, and you're going to be generating content on OnlyFans. And then, you know, on the weekends, you go work in a strip club too. Um, So even though I started exclusively on sugaring websites, it very quickly um, at that kind of at that same time, I met my first trafficker. And so he taught me about Backpage, but I still had that active profile um, and was still engaged off and on the entire time I was being trafficked all five years um, with sugaring relationships. And then some individuals that I met through like traditional like escort websites eventually became sugar daddies um, because they were my regulars and they were paying bills more so than just like an hourly rate or a transaction rate. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. The sugar daddies, I'm sure they don't present themselves as a trafficker. They don't say, Hey, I'm Alex. I'm a trafficker. I think that some of our listeners could benefit from understanding what traffickers look like or other labels that we can use for traffickers. From what I understand, there's three different types of pimps or, or traffickers. 
Can you speak to the different types of pimps that exist? Sure. Yeah. So there's kind of, um, as you said, there's like three different kinds of third-party traffickers. Um, so you're going to have pimps, which a lot of people think of pimps like the purple fur coat and like the pimp cup and right. kind of that flashy um, urban, for lack of a better word, um, kind of attire. And so like, yeah, those those individuals do exist. A lot of pimps don't necessarily physically look like that anymore, mm-hmm. um, but it is still a typology. Um, you have gang controlled trafficking, um, which is more like organized crime. So you may have like street gangs, um, biker gangs, um, organized like international crime syndicates, like illicit massage businesses are oftentimes run by gang controlled trafficking operations. So gang controlled typically doesn't have like one trafficker. There's multiple traffickers. Um, and the, the victim is really kind of property of that group as opposed to the person, Um, And then you have familial trafficking, which is kind of self-explanatory. So somebody from um, typically your family of origin is your exploiter. Um, And obviously there's going to be overlap between all of those. So a lot of gang members um, who maybe have like aged out of gang activities or have a criminal arrest record or have been identified as gang members move into pimping because they can make just as much money selling people as they have drugs and weapons previously, um, but significantly lower cost of risk. Um, And then with both pimps and gangs, you see... um, like a generational cycle there um, of individuals that grow up in that environment and it's normalized. And so familial trafficking happens there. Um, But you also like, when you think about sugaring, like, yes, there's absolutely like third party traffickers that can create a profile and pretend to be a sugar daddy and then groom and recruit you and um, traffic you to other people. Um, but sugar daddies can be traffickers in and of themselves, um, just in a direct transaction with the sugar baby or the victim as well. And I think that's something that, um, we don't talk enough about, uh, we kind of think of all trafficking as being this like third party, um, but sugar, sugar daddies. Um, so a lot of States do not recognize, um, that like, oh, I didn't know she was under 18. That's not a valid defense in a lot of States. Um, and so sugaring websites don't have age verification. They don't do any type of screening background check, anything for sugar daddies or sugar babies. There is no way to guarantee. So if somebody is a sugar daddy and they're talking to somebody, you don't know if they're over the age of 18 or or not. Um, and so that may or may not be a valid defense if that individual is identified as a trafficking victim. Um, another way that sugar daddies can be a trafficker, again, under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, when we start looking at force, fraud, and coercion and like the AMP model, um, the act means and purpose. Um, so obtaining somebody through force, fraud, or coercion is considered trafficking with or without a third party. Um, And internationally, the Palermo Protocol looks at uh, poverty is a pimp in itself. And so if you are paying for commercial sex transactions from somebody who is in poverty, that is exploitation um, by definition. So um, I... I think people just need, we need to be having more conversations about some of those nuances and how that can show up. 
or even just, just some of the rationalizations I think that sugar daddies may have around like, oh, I'm helping out with school tuition or, um, well, I'm not giving her money for sex. I'm buying her handbags and she hangs out with me and goes to dinner. Kind of that, like trying to sterilize what's happening. Um, and the reality is that a lot of it is trafficking. Can you elaborate a little bit more on AMP? I'm not very familiar with that. So we use um, the AMP model uh, at the Avery Center when we do client intakes to screen and just determine if somebody has, in fact, experienced human trafficking. Um, And so it stands for ACT, Means, and Purpose. Um, And it is literally just taken directly from... um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. It is the definition, um, but just broken down in a way that's a lot easier to understand. So action is the the actual activity that's um, that is like procuring the individual or exploiting the individual. So um, inducing, recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining a person. Um, means is through that force, fraud, or coercion component with the exception of if somebody is under the age of 18, force, fraud, and coercion do not need to be present. Mm. Um, People under the age of 18 cannot legally consent in the United States to commercial sex acts, full stop. Um, And then purpose. um, So commercial sexual exploitation or labor and services in the cases of labor trafficking. Um, So just a really helpful way to kind of break that down and think through, is somebody engaging in trafficking? Well, let's look at the AMP model. So looking back on your experience, when do you identify or label your experience going from dating to trafficking? Good question. Um, really, I think, I think like the first couple, like sugar daddies, um, like that first one, I said, you know, nothing sexual happened. It was super uncomfortable and I wanted to leave. So I see that situation as being like, I was a, being a groomed. A potential. Yeah trafficking situation. It okay. Absolutely. Would have been trafficking had a sexual act occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, from there forward, I do consider every single instance I experienced to have been trafficking, you know, even before I met my actual third party pimp traffickers, um, because I was living in poverty, I was severely traumatized from past gender-based violence. Um, I had an absolute lack of other options. And, and I think that that's a big piece. So like, how do we, how do we define consent? Um, to me, consent is really like, what other options do I have? Do I have other options? Because if I do, um, then I'm able to evaluate which option is the best choice for me. But if I'm facing um, my kids go hungry tonight, or we get evicted at the end of this month, um, or I go have sex with this stranger, that's not true choice. That is not consent. That's extremely constrained. You weren't thinking of these individuals in a sexual way. It at was all purely about the the need for resources absolutely it was this is you know plug this into this equation like i need this and in order to get this i have to do this and this and i get this outcome and my need is met in the moment you i'm assuming maybe i sh- i shouldn't assume but i would assume that in the moment you didn't think of what you were doing or what you were experiencing as trafficking absolutely not 
at what point did you identify and were able to label it as trafficking? You know, this is one of the conversations we have at the Avery Center all the time, um, because what we see and what I experienced, you know, I exited in 2012. Um, My entire time I was in the commercial sex trade, I identified as a sex worker. Um, And I was very adamant about that. And I was aware of the TVPA. I was aware of anti-trafficking efforts. I was aware that by legal definition, um, people would term my experiences trafficking. And I was extremely insistent that that was not my experience and that people didn't understand the game or the life. Mm. Um, So it was not until after I exited about two years after. Um, so I started therapy about a year after exiting and after about like six or nine months of therapy, um, had finally arrived at this place where I was like, I, I think I got taken advantage of a little bit. Um, but I still did not identify with the term trafficking. And it really wasn't until I started doing public speaking about human trafficking awareness, ironically, Um, that I was able to start to put together like my own experiences and go, oh, I did experience trafficking. Like this is, this is what trafficking looks like. Yeah. Do you think that cognitive dissonance played a role in that denial of you saying, no, that, that wasn't me. That wasn't my experience. Was cognitive dissonance a big player in that? Absolutely. And creating cognitive dissonance is probably one of my favorite intervention tactics now uh, when we do like outreach and intervention uh, with with potential victims. Um, how do you but it, how do you create cognitive dissonance in those people? Um, so cognitive dissonance is a good thing, right? Like we need to have some of that like mental friction to figure out like what do we align with? Where are our values? Um, what do we want to pursue? Um, it's just that traffickers step in or like the the desperation to have our basic needs over right. overwhelms our ability to actually look at something objectively and go like, here's the pros and cons, here's the pros and cons. So right. um, during my trafficking, and this is what we've heard from a lot of survivors in our research and just in peer support groups that I've um, been a part of over the years, when you are being trafficked and like, this is human nature, right? Like nobody wants to admit that they don't have control over their life. Like, how would you feel if somebody just showed up at your door and was like, you're making all the wrong decisions and you can't see it clearly. Like you'd immediately get defensive. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and so because you have such a lack of control in a trafficking situation, you hold on to any shred of an idea that you have choice and you have Mm. control. And so by saying, I'm making these choices, leave me alone. That's like the one piece of control you have Mm. um, in that moment. And so it's really not until somebody has control in other areas of their life that all of this lack of control starts to come out and they start to process all these things. Like, I had no control over my life this whole time, Mm. but it's really hard to process those things when they're actively happening. Yeah. And I'd imagine that once you're able to confront the cognitive dissonance and acknowledge the reality, I bet that's a very powerful moment. And that's probably why you create, you deliberately create the cognitive, cognitive dissonance for people so that they can hopefully launch forward into more of an empowered state. 
Yeah. So my research this last decade has centered around cultic theory. So pimp controlled sex trafficking meets all 15 characteristics of a cultic group. Um, and one of the, the strategies that, that traffickers use uh, that like cult leaders use as well is shutting down that critical thinking process in your brain and literally programming you to just obey and stop having kind of that conflicting back and forth. Mm. Um, Don't don't question anything. Don't question anything. And you learn not to because you're punished. You're socially isolated. You don't have access to other outside information that can kind of help create a different frame of reference. So that's why I love using kind of planting Mm. those seeds of cognitive dissonance because it creates discomfort. And as humans, we're wired to move towards comfortability. Mm. And so if we can make people feel uncomfortable, that sounds like torturous, but it's not. It's a mental Um, discomfort. Yes. Create some mental discomfort around like, is this what I want? Is this aligning with my long-term goals? you see people more likely to engage in um, like self-advocacy because they have come to that conclusion versus me saying like this, you're making really bad choices and you should do something different. Like, I don't want to hear that still to this day. Mm, I get defensive when my therapist tells me that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You mentioned the term Mm self-advocacy and I would imagine that the work you do with the Avery Center you really have to empower the women that you work with. Do you work with men and boys as well or just women? Yep. Yeah, we work with all genders. Okay. So so that term, self-advocacy, how important is it that they engage in self-advocacy because you can't push some, someone along in this journey to the to the point of exiting and thriving. They they right. have to engage as well. They have to be on board correct? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it is, I think why the Avery Center's uh, services are so successful, why we do see such um, like high rates of initial engagement and then long-term recovery. Um, But it's also something that like, you can't create a cookie cutter formula. So I'm, I'm very left brain. So I'm always like, how do we create a formula that you like plug in this number of things and you get this output? Yeah we're humans. We don't work that way. Um, but I literally, (laughs) you can't, you can't create a Monday board of how to get someone out. Listen, if we could, I would, (laughs) I would copyright that thing and give it to every organization in the country. Um, but it, it really, you know, if you have not had access to choices, like true unconstrained choices, sometimes since birth, if you were in a familial trafficking situation, being offered two choices is so overwhelming. And so you really have to start at this very small place of offering Mm. choices. So we talk about like, even during an intervention or like a client intake, we provide a series of choices. Like, do you feel comfortable doing your intake over the phone or would you like to set up a Zoom call? Which do you feel more comfortable with? And then once they decide that, or like, do you want to do it over the phone or do you want to come into to the office if you're local or would you like to meet somewhere in the community for coffee? So really, I mean, those are like baby step choices, but those can be really overwhelming for survivors who haven't right. been able to do those things. Right. Um, but it's also really important, you know, as a survivor starts to move into that place of like, I do have the ability to make choices for myself. Mm-hmm. So it's super important that we have lots of options to talk through with our clients and we are completely forthcoming about those options in a fact-based evidence-based manner 
And then we support them in making the choices that they feel are best for them. It's not our life. We don't have to live out the consequences or the fallout or whatever. Um, So we're not going to make those decisions for other people. But it's such a journey to empower people to that place of like, you get to make this decision. Mm. How do you want to make this decision for yourself? And once you see people start to make those choices for themselves and start to feel empowered, it's like a snowball that picks up speed. And then you get to this place where you're like, I need this. I want this. Like, this is not okay. And like, this needs to change. And that feels so good to get to that place. Right. Yeah. When you start to have that snowball effect and you're aligning your actions with your aspirations, that's a really powerful and and, and rewarding moment. So that's that's really cool. I have to ask the following question because of our mission statement. Our mission statement is to educate individuals on the harmful effects of pornography using science facts and personal accounts. And so I have to ask, did pornography play a role in your lived experience? I think I was very fortunate. So we're working on um, research with OnlyFans right now. And I have learned so much about, shall we say, the healthcare of content creators and people in the porn industry that I had no idea. And like, it's stuff that I will probably carry with me the rest of my life vicarious trauma wise. Um, So my intersection with pornography was during the grooming process with my first trafficker. um, And he was um, encouraging me to branch out from just sugaring and start posting on Backpage, And I was like, you know, isn't that prostitution? Like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I'm scared. He encouraged me to watch pornography as a means of like, if you can perform this way, like this is what men want sexually and that's what they're paying for. And so if you can perform like these porn stars that these guys are already watching, they will come back to you for more. Um, So pornography absolutely plays a role. And we see it when we facilitate our um, like buyer diversion programs. Um, 100% of the men arrested um, in demand reduction operations that we've done for six years now, 100% of them have struggled with pornography in the past. Mm. Makes sense. So I have two questions and I'm trying to decide which one to ask first because they're (laughs) kind of related. The first question, I guess, is you talked about exiting the life of sex trafficking after five years. Mm -hmm some of the challenges that a person might face. We talked about the cognitive dissonance and all of that conditioning that happens in in that process in the life. Can you speak to some of the challenging aspects of leaving your trafficker and exiting the life? Yeah, absolutely. I actually am working on a research study about this right now. Um, (laughs) And I was just, I was ranting to Daniel and Angie uh, this morning about some of the the statistics and just some of the like assumptions or stereotypes around exiting. Okay. Um, so in my situation, personally, I really did get to a place where this cognitive dissonance got so loud that I couldn't reconcile what was being done to me anymore. Mm. Um, and so I am extremely fortunate and I want to make it very clear that I am statistically an outlier in that I have a family of origin that is 
it was safe for me to reach out to and ask for help. Mm. That is not a common experience for most survivors. And I definitely attribute that foundation to my ability to exit and get to where I am today. Mm. Um, If you don't have that, you're starting at ground zero. You have absolutely no social support system and it's incredibly difficult. Um, So I was able to relocate back um, home to the city I grew up in. Um, my family had lived there for most of my life. And so they had a lot of connections. I was able to access housing despite having a criminal record because they had those relationships in the community. Um, same thing with like employment. I was also extremely uh, fortunate that I got a full ride scholarship for my undergraduate program. And so that included uh, room and board. Um, so again, like all of these things came together that really made it possible for me um, to successfully exit, but it was not an overnight, like I clawed through the floorboards and ran off into the forest kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a process. It's not an event most of the time. And I think that's another area. The anti-trafficking field has some work to do um, is recognizing how complex it is to leave and that it's not most of the time you don't just like pack your bag and walk out and start over. Um, So it took me about six months from exiting, from getting away from my trafficker um, to really get to that place where I was able to leave the commercial sex trade entirely because I did not have another source of income. I didn't have housing and housing stability. All of those things had to be in place. So once they were, I was able to exit long-term and then I had all of these supports that were falling into place at that time. Um, So That's pretty common. Uh, Research shows that if you were first exploited under the age of 18, it takes an average of 12 attempts to exit the commercial sex trade. Um, If you're first trafficked over the age of 18, it takes about six attempts to exit, um, which, you know, counting back through all my attempts, it was around five or six times over those five years that I tried to leave um, until I was finally successful long-term. Um, that was and, be my next question was, is it common to exit the life and then return to the life? Extremely common. Yeah. So we use at the Avery center, uh, the stages of change model. Um, so if you haven't looked at it, this is to all the listeners this is your homework assignment, go Google stages of change model. Um, but it really helps explain how as humans, we move through behavior change processes Um, So even things like setting New Year's resolutions and why most of us fail at them by like March, Um, it's it's the same thing. We don't have enough supports in place to maintain all of these changes at once. So um, our goal at the Avery Center, all of our services are built with that like relapse, whether it's substances or relationships or an environment that you go back to, that relapse is a part of the learning process. Um, And so it's our goal that we see people go on an upward spiral um, and they are able to stay in like the maintenance phase or like the exited piece longer um, and they reach out while they're in relapse and stay connected with us, just checking in, even if things have changed and priorities have changed, that's okay. We just want to stay connected. Hmm. Um, and we've seen a lot of success with that model. From what I know, based on speaking to people who have experienced the life, a big challenge in regards to exiting the life is stigmatization. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that a little bit as you move back home and were able to have access to resources to help you get back on your feet and align your actions with your aspirations. Did stigmatization play a role in you 
ever wanting to return back to the life? Absolutely. Stigmatization is one of my favorite things to talk about. And I have exciting news that'll be like groundbreaking um, because it just happened yesterday and it's, it's a continuation of that for me. Um, So when I first exited, so mind you, I had a a criminal arrest record. I had 11 arrests. Um, One of those arrests that I have carried just the emotional weight of. So on a police report, there's a line that you can write, the police officer can write if there's a victim in the crime that happened. And so in my arrest record, um, one of the officers had written that I had victimized society. Mm. And so I carry that with me that I was making these choices, that I was doing these things to other people around me. Um, Not necessarily that these things were being done to me. You know, Mm. I've done a ton of work and now I'm like, actually, those things were done to me. I was not victimizing society. Um, Prostitution across the board is horrifically traumatic to whole family systems, which we could do a whole other podcast on. Um, But it's, it's horrible. Um, but I carried that with me. And because I was criminalized for my exploitation, I was never identified as a victim. Hmm. And so I didn't qualify for services in my community. I was on probation. My probation oh, wow. officer was like, what, what the fuck's wrong with you? Like get your shit together. And I was never screened for like, oh, like maybe you actually were a victim of a crime. Let's do a human trafficking screening of you. Um, Through all of my arrests, I was never screened as a victim. Um, And so that makes it really hard to access services. So then on top of that, because I returned to the city that I grew up in, pretty small town, um, there was a lot of rumors about like, oh, Megan's a sugar baby and Megan's involved in prostitution. And, um, but people didn't know the truth. They knew these rumors. Right. And right. so that made connecting at more of a personal level, very difficult too. So I was struggling to access systems and resources. And then I was struggling to build like a social, healthy social support network. Right. Um, and, and those things are really common, um, and, and they, they carry with you. So that's the piece that I was like, this is what's exciting to share. Um, yesterday I actually attended court in Las Vegas virtually. Um, and my petition to have my record, um, sealed was granted and it will be, it's like exactly 10 years. Um, it was like 10 years. This may was my last arrest in Las Vegas. So it has been a decade where I have carried that shame, Mm. um, and barrier to options. So one of the reasons I started my own organization was because I had a criminal record and I was applying for jobs and nobody would hire me because nobody wants to hire somebody who's a prostitute. Um, and has that on their record. There's all kinds of stigmas around that. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I started my own organization. Thank goodness uh, things have worked out well. Yeah. Um, but I also like, I have kids who are in school and I want to volunteer and I have to go in every year and do a background check and disclose that I have prostitution charges. And I have to hand that to the front office manager who now wow. knows so much about my past. She knows everything and nothing. Right. Right. And so those are the stigmas like 10 years later, I am still carrying those things. Wow. Do you see a shift in our society? in regards to becoming more trauma-informed and being able to facilitate or use trauma-informed care? Yeah, I definitely think like as a society, generally speaking, we are moving to a place where we are recognizing how many people have trauma, not just, you know, 
gender-based violence trauma, but all kinds of trauma and how that shows up in our families, in our friendships, in our work environments, in our choices and our behaviors, um, the correlation with addiction and substance use disorders and homelessness, like all of those things. We're starting to have those conversations. Um, and, and we're really starting to move towards this place of like, something has to change both at the micro level. Like we all need to do our own work, but really at the systemic level, like there's so many systems barriers, um, that, that keep people from being able to thrive because of what was done to them. Yeah. Because it would have been nice if that officer was able to engage in trauma-informed care and Mm -hmm. recognize that you were a victim and not place that and increase the level of stigmatization, right? Absolutely. So being a researcher and a sociologist, I'm sure that a lot of your work is founded in curiosity. You're like, why is this happening? Why do we react? Why do people react in this way or that way? Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, the question is, what drives you to stay dedicated to this work? Is it the curiosity? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, So I started therapy at the beginning of 2020 because the pandemic brought up so much unresolved trauma that I did not realize was there. Um, And so one of the first uh, sessions I had with my new therapist, she was like, let's figure out like why you do the work that you do, because Mm. like, this is super intense stuff, especially considering my history with it. Like I have a direct connection. So, you know, my work is not just work. That's my life at the Mm -hmm. same time. And it's hard to navigate those boundaries. Um, and really walked out of that. Um, so she, she had kind of asked me, you know, the similar things and, and she made a comment like, well, you know, uh, most research is knee search. Mm. And that has just stuck with me the last couple of years. And so we've actually um, built that into our research department's practices of um, what survivor leadership and career path development looks like in the research space. So all of us as survivors, like if you sit down with any survivor and you say, like, if you could do a research project or if you could solve something, we all are pulling on our own experiences where we experienced harm or like service gaps um, or just things like, why did my family member do this to me that we really want to understand? And we want to, we want to understand what happened to ourselves, but we also have this like deep sense of justice of like, I don't want this to happen to other people. Right. Um, and so research has become very healing and um i i advocate a lot for involving survivors not just as like research subjects like we're not just guinea pigs um really in the development process so we actually have a project that we're working on right now um with a research fellowship i think we have 10 survivors going through it but it's they get to pick the research topic that they're going to do and design kind of a mini project Um, and I think every single person's project is based off of their own lived experience and something that they just want to better understand. So it becomes a therapeutic tool for them. It is so healing. And it is, I think I will probably do research forever because I just have so many questions about people. Um, but for right now, like doing research in human trafficking and there's been, you know, topics where I'm like, I I think I'm good. Like I don't interview victims about their trauma history. I get it. I've interviewed enough people. I've lived it. Um, I have gone through a phase most recently of interviewing sex buyers 
um, and doing content analysis of like hobby review boards and that kind of stuff, because I needed to understand like, why do these men do these things? Mm. Um, and so I still don't fully have that answer, but it's, I've been able to kind of integrate. So back to that body keeps the score. Um, I'm able to feel my feelings now and I'm able to process like the emotional side and the logical side of, of this experience and go, okay, like I can put this behind me. Cool. Thanks for sharing. How do you get in contact with the survivors and victims that you work with? How does you and and those you work with at the Avery Center get in contact with those you work with? Yeah, so we we definitely have a lot of community partnerships. So we get referrals. We provide trainings to other organizations who are serving um, high-risk populations and are likely to interact with trafficking victims. Um, but I was, um, my second trafficker, uh, part of my exploitation, my grooming recruitment exploitation happened on social media. Um, and so I still have access to that community on social media and it's, um, grown exponentially over the last 12, 12 ish years now. Um, so we have a network of about 5,000 individuals primarily across the United States, but it, that network is international, um, and most of them are currently in the commercial sex trade. Um, mm. So we're able to do digital outreach. We're able to send care packages. We have a virtual drop-in center um, with some of that like cognitive dissonance information mm. um, and then get folks connected with services like peer support groups, housing, employment, um, and so on. Um, but social media is, I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword basically at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes sense. How can, how can we support you and the Avery Center? Yeah. So, uh, so many ways. So, um, easiest hands down, easiest way to support us is to follow us on social media. Doesn't cost anything. Um, we're really big on educating, um, spheres of influence. And so a simple like or share, um, can impact and kind of create this ripple effect. So, uh, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. LinkedIn is having a moment. So if you're a, a <laughs> professional, um, you can follow us there too in this field. Um, but our handle is just the Avery center org, um, on Facebook and Instagram, um, right now. So our care package program is probably one of our biggest needs that we do not receive like government or foundation funding for. Mm. Um, we send out a hundred care packages every month to active victims and exited survivors across the United States. Um, and we need affirmation cards for those two handwritten affirmation cards. So, um, there's ways to engage with us, uh, affirmation cards. You know, if you have scrapbooking material at home, you can put together affirmation cards, um, and send them in. We need a hundred every month. So there's literally no such thing as too many cards. Um, and then sponsoring a care package, it's $5 a month for, um, postage and $10 a month for the items in it, or $15 a month to sponsor one individual, um, for a year. Um, so if you think that like, no, you like, I don't have enough money to really make an impact, like literally $5 can make an impact in somebody's life. Okay. What is a care package consist of usually? What are some Our of the common items? 
Yeah. Our care packages are so cool. I low-key want to sign up for one myself. Um, (laughs) They're really focused on self-care and um, building like relationship or community. So um, this last month, um, our, actually the Avery Center team painted little like flower pots um, and then we sent soil and seeds. So it's kind of like you can do that activity by yourself or with your family Um, and the messaging. And we have some like activities online that go with that. And it was all about growth and kind of like goal setting and a new chapter. Um, we have done, I think this fall, um, we're doing one with like tea mugs and tea or hot cocoa and fuzzy socks and just kind of like a fall cool. themed. Um, so just really fun stuff that, really cool. that just says we see you yeah. and we care. Is it something that comes monthly to these victims and survivors or is it just a one-time thing? Yeah. So they can sign up. Um, we usually open our signups in January for the new year and they sign up one time and can receive a package every single month for the full year. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Well, I want to leave you with the opportunity to have the last word during this conversation. If there's anything on your heart or mind that we haven't talked about or something that you want to reemphasize now would be that time. Cause we'd love to hear those thoughts as well. Sure. Um, I think kind of my, my closing thoughts, particularly anytime when speaking with, um, potentially like a, uh, male audience is that sometimes some of this stuff can feel really attacking, um, of like men are the, the whole problem in the whole world. Um, and I can only imagine what that, that feels like to kind of be on the receiving end of some of that. Um, but I also want to highlight that, while um, individuals who have maybe consumed porn or paid for sex um, in some form or fashion um, with regards to human trafficking are identified as kind of like the problem, um, they're actually the solution. Um, and, And I think that that's a really important piece. There is literally mathematically no way to end commercial sexual exploitation um, without men changing their behaviors and educating their spheres of influence. So um, like you and I don't have the ability to go into every single locker room and uh, bar night and poker game and uh, bachelor's party um, and talk to people, but the listeners here, like we get to multiply that. So anybody that's listening that is in those, those spheres, like you guys have the ability to speak truth and bring awareness and encourage your peers to make different choices. Um, and, and that is how we end this. A 2021 nationally representative survey of U.S. teens shows 84.4% of males and 57% of females ages 14 through 18 have viewed porn. As porn becomes increasingly normalized in the digital age, education on its well-documented harms becomes increasingly important. Fight the New Drug's age-appropriate and engaging live presentations highlight research from respected academic institutions that demonstrate the significant impacts of porn consumption on individuals, relationships, and society. Request a Fight the New Drug live presentation for your school, business, or community event by visiting ftnd.org forward slash live. That's ftnd.org forward slash L-I-V-E.
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, you can check out the links included with this episode. If you found this podcast helpful, consider subscribing and leaving a review. Again, big thanks to you for listening to this conversation. As you go about your day, we invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming.